Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. College is expensive. In some cases, it's really, really expensive. Still, of the over 3 million high school seniors graduating this year, about two-thirds will go on to attend a college or university. Now, some of those students may be enrolling because they genuinely want to continue their learning. But most, if not all, are motivated to some degree by the promise of a higher paying job after graduation. Here's the big question. Is college worth the expense? Now, if you ask an economist, they'll probably tell you it depends. Let's ask a more useful question. How can you make college worth the expense? Here to help us with that question is my new AEI colleague, Beth Akers. Beth is a resident scholar at AEI, and her work focuses on the economics of higher education. Previously, Beth was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a staff economist with the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Beth is also the author of a new book out this week titled Making College Pay. Beth, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having me, Nat. I'm glad to be here. All right. So, Beth, you wrote a new book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Start us out. Why did you write it and who's it for? Something that is consistently happening in the public discourse on higher ed, but not often commented on, is that there is a lot of regret about decisions in higher education, especially around financial decisions. And I think that's actually even fueling what we're talking about right now at a federal policy level, which is student loan cancellation. So this book was my attempt to, instead of talking to the wonk class, like most of my writing is doing, I wanted to talk to students, aspiring students and their parents about how to make decisions about college that they probably won't later come to regret. The book narrows the the problem of deciding where to go and how to pay and reduce the financial risk that's involved in this transaction to an economics framework. Okay. So that makes a ton of sense. And let me just put this out there that often I sort of wear the interviewer's hat, but I'm taking this off right now because I have a a rising 10th grader this summer and this is on the horizon. Okay. So I'm just going to ask the questions that I want to know the answer to. One of the big ones I want to ask is, uh, you know, right off the start, is college still worth it? All the best evidence we have on this question points in the same direction, which is yes. Here's the caveat. College is worth it on average. That means if you take all the money that people spend on college across the whole country and compare it to the benefits they get on the back end through increased earnings opportunities, more consistent employment, and all the other things that come from education, um, it's worth it. You get more than what we're spending. Here's the problem, and it's the too, too seldom discussed problem, which is that it's actually also risky. So at the individual level, there's no guarantee that you're going to come out ahead. But there are things that you can do as an individual to increase the odds that you'll end up ahead. And, you know, sometimes I'm criticized for saying this is all about finances. But if you look at survey data, 90 percent of students tell you that the single most important reason they're going to college is to increase their career opportunities and earnings potential. So that makes sense. And I certainly understand that it's not a sure thing. So Mm -hmm. most isn't all. Most get a payoff. What are the students for whom college doesn't necessarily pay off? 
Mm -hmm. So the number one reason that people are not getting a payoff from college is because they're not finishing. And this is something that I'm the most concerned about. So you would be shocked to hear how many people are starting college and not finishing their degree. I think most people anticipate when they send in that deposit check and start paying their first uh, semester of tuition that they're going to make it to the finish line. But a, a surprising number don't. And that's a huge problem because none of the financial returns come until you finish that degree. So half of a college degree does not get you half of the earnings bump of a college degree. So you're basically putting it all on the line. And unless you cross that finish line of getting your degree, you don't get the earnings bump. And what we see is these are the people who actually struggle to repay their student loans. Um, they've maybe got even a small amount of debt because they've gone to school for just a short amount of time, but they're not able to repay it because again, they've got access to the earnings that are given to people with just a high school diploma. So that makes sense, right? I mean, you got to go the distance to get the paper. The paper really mm -hmm. differentiates you in the labor market. It opens up things. Uh, I know we've gone over this before on the podcast, but it's been some time. You say a surprising number of students don't cross the finish line. What's the proportion that actually don't make it? That's 40% of people who start a bachelor's degree. So we get about two thirds of people who start will actually finish, but that one third, I can guarantee you, are people who didn't expect that they would be among the ones who don't complete their degree. Wow, that's a huge number. And it's even bigger at the community college level, right? That's right. Community colleges are a great service to our community, but unfortunately they've got pretty bad outcomes. A lot of people who start there don't finish. Um, fortunately, they're not too expensive. so. The downside is not terrible, but um, it's certainly an issue. Okay. So we just talked about like one of the axes along which you can make a different decision, right? You can go to community mm -hmm. college, you can go to four-year college. And, you know, my son, he's, he's expecting to go to college, but that brings up the question of where should you apply? So, mm -hmm. you know, what factors should students and families be paying attention to when they're comparing colleges and maybe even before that? How should we put together a list of colleges to compare? Okay. So what I always say is the first step should really be for you to define as an individual what it is that you want to get out of college. And my assumption is that for a lot of people, the financial return is an important aspect, but it's not everything. So you need to decide on an individual basis, what are the things that are critically important to you and what do you want to get out of school? It sounds like an obvious and simple thing to do, but I don't think a lot of people are doing it because we've just driven home this message that you've got to go to college, you've got to go to college, you've got to go to college. So what I like to say is start with that, figure out what are your non-negotiables when it comes to picking a school based on what your values are, and then go ahead and look at the College Navigator, which is a federal website that lists all of the accredited institutions in the country, and get a sense of what your, your total set of options are. Now, the next piece is critically important, and I think it's what's most often overlooked, is that the next, next step is to do, do your homework on what the outcomes are for students who have previously gone to those colleges. So now when you and I applied for college, we flipped through that, uh, that digest of college that had the, the telephone book paper, thin pages, and it you know told us which schools were good party schools based on surveys and things like that. Um, we didn't have the benefit of knowing, okay, how does you know a graduate with an economics degree from SUNY Albany, how do they do in terms of their earnings after graduation, right? That wasn't on the table. Fortunately, today, for students who do want that to be part of their decision-making process, we have a relatively new federal website called the College Scorecard. You can go to that website, 
pull up any college that is part of the federal financial aid system and see how do graduates from different majors at that college do after graduation when it comes to paying back their loans and how much they're earning. And so if you know how much you'd have to pay to go to a school and you know how much you're likely to earn on the back end, that's where you can do that calculus to figure out, is this a worthwhile financial investment? And then incorporate that with your other values. Okay. So this is big news, right? So for parents who used the little phone book thing or mm-hmm. didn't really use it, as the case may be, <laughs> uh, you know, we have a whole new set of information that can inform not only what college you might do better off at, but mm-hmm. what program of study you might do better off at within that college. So yeah, that could be exactly. a game changer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's complicate this a little bit. So I I sort of know the numbers on college payoff and I know about the the scorecard and I can, I could kind of make not as well as you, but I could make the economic case for why we should go to college. And despite all those things, that's not really the reason that my son's going to go to college. My son's going to mm-hmm. go to college. Cause it's just sort of like, it's the default. It's like the picture in his head of what makes sense for, for him. Um, and that's pretty loaded, right? We can talk about why there's inequities there and why, uh, you know, sort of pioneering first-gen students have a, a particular trouble. But when it comes to your job in this book, an economist trying to, you know, push folks to work through these economic arguments and help that get them to make better decisions, mm-hmm. um, how much does that complicate what you're trying to do when the actual basis for a lot of these decisions isn't sort of the rational economic model? Mm-hmm. So I feel like the framework that I provide gives plenty of room for that. So what I like to say is, you know, you can have different reasons for going to college. Maybe it's social, maybe it's, you know, you want to be the type of person that goes to college, whatever that means in your community, right? And those are all fine things. Um, But I think it's important to separate them out because if you don't identify what are the values that are actually driving you, it's hard to make a decision about price such that you can decide, yes, what I'm paying at this school is worth that thing, whatever that thing is that you're returning. And it's much easier, of course, with the financial stuff. You know, what is the what is the payoff of prestige of going to an elite institution, right? In your social group, maybe it's really high, maybe it's really low. And then you kind of have to balance that against what that cost is going to be. So, you know, I I think there's plenty of room. I think the financial piece is an aspect that's overlooked too often. And so I'm simply arguing that people should incorporate that into their decision-making process without necessarily pushing out any of the other things that are driving them to go to school. So that does make sense. I mean, it's sort of incumbent on you when you make this big decision. Even if the finances or the payoff isn't the only thing driving that decision, that you responsibly sort of account for that. That's that's sort of on you when you sign that promissory note to pay all that money back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So your book is titled Making College Pay. And you know, it's great that my son will probably see a good return on investment eventually. But in the short term, we have a different problem, right? We got to pay for college. Um, so now I don't know, I I think you've probably noticed this, but working for a think tank isn't necessarily the, the ticket straight to the 1%. So (laughs) what are our options and how should we think about, uh, the challenge of paying for college now when we're making these decisions? 
Well, first, I want to say the question of whether or not college is financially worth it is sort of separate from how you pay for it, right? So that kind of comes first. Is it worth it? Yes. Okay, then how are you going to pay for it? I am actually um, more positive on student loans than a lot of people. So I tend to think if you're making an investment that's solid, meaning you've looked at the data, you know that the financial return that you're likely to get makes sense for you and is comfortable, then why not borrow to get there, right? We see a lot of parents struggling to, to save every penny before their child turns 18 so that they can pay in cash. And that's a great gift to your child if you can do that. Um, but on the other hand, if, if debt opens access to new opportunities um, that you couldn't otherwise afford, I think that's great. And then there's another piece of advice I often give that I think is also counterintuitive. And that's that even if you um, not were in, uh, you were an investment banker and we're sitting on the cash to pay for your son to go to school, I'm still going to recommend that you borrow as many pennies as you can um, to do it through the federal lending program in the name of your student. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First, over the past decade, we have expanded the safety net for student loans such that we now have a universal set of programs that makes it, if your college degree does not pay financial dividends in terms of giving you a high paying job relative to how much you paid, you are getting a subsidy from the government through the income-driven repayment system and ultimately have the potential to have your loans forgiven. So if you pay cash, your son goes on and then decides to be public defender or whatever like lower wage occupation relative to the amount that he paid, um, then you're out of luck. You're not getting that forgiveness that you would have gotten had you put the loans in your son's name. Um, the other piece of that is that the interest rates on federal student loans are actually quite low. So if you've got cash on the sidelines, go ahead and put that in an index fund in your um, in your brokerage account and borrow the money and then pay it back down the line. You'll have arbitrage the system and come out ahead financially. So there's, um, of course, the decision of how much to spend should be totally separate from whether or not you can access loans, right? So I'm not saying borrow every penny to pay for the most expensive school you can. I'm saying decide on a as a spending level and a school and a major, all of that, that makes sense financially. And then if you want to use loans to cover it, go ahead and do so. We don't need to be as scared as the popular discourse on student loans might have you believe we should be. Okay. So hold on a second. I got to repeat back what I've heard because this is not what I'm used to hearing. I'm used to hearing student loans are, you know, an albatross that drowns folks. But what you're actually saying is, if you are a family that could use cash to pay for college, that that's not the best instrument to use because A, there's a better return for your money. That's a very economic argument. Right. But B, there's some sort of social safety net to help you with those costs if you don't get the payoff. Right. Do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. So income-driven repayment, which is this somewhat new program that a lot of people don't know exists, um, goes along with federal student loans. And it's really kind of like an insurance policy. So what it does is on a monthly basis, if your loan payment is high relative to your income, you're eligible to have that payment reduced. And if that stays for a long time so that you're making payments for 10 or 20 years, depending on the industry you're employed in, and then you still have a balance, all of that's wiped away. 
The point is that if you've made a big investment in college, but aren't seeing a labor market return, we don't want you to be held in debt indefinitely. And that's the function of that program. But you're missing out on that opportunity for insurance if you're paying cash. And the the safety net is is a good thing, but it shouldn't make people sort of insensitive to the cost of college, right? Because most people do get a return when they complete the degree. Mm -hmm. And so if you decide to go out and spend you know, $400,000 and take all those loans for it, Mm -hmm. you may actually end up paying those off and you still may not get the payoff because you spent so much up front. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a homeowner's insurance policy, for example, but I don't leave my garage door open every night, inviting people in the neighborhood to come steal my fancy mountain bike, for example. Um, You know, so it's the same deal. You make a savvy decision because you may still be on the hook to, to pay for it, but you have that that downside protection, which is good socially. I think it's an important program. Um, and it also has a lot of individual benefits for families if they want to take advantage of it. Now, I want to make one clarification. So I'm talking about federal student loans here. Federal student loans are a program that's administered by the Federal Department of Education for students at Stafford Loans. I am not talking about private student loans. And so federal student loans are the ones that you get access to through completing the FAFSA and applying for federal financial aid. Private student loans are the ones that you get from going to a bank or private lender through their website or into the retail location and and applying for them. So those tend to not be a good way for financing um, higher ed. And in fact, they're kind of on par with putting it on a credit card. So um, if you're trying to think about, uh, you know, if you don't have cash on hand, which is, I think, probably the more likely case for, for people listening, and you're thinking about how to make ends meet, private student loans are not an ideal solution. Um, they are tend to have high interest rates, and they're also not dischargeable in bankruptcy, which makes them um, kind of a really tricky and, and risky financial product. So um, think of them as being slightly riskier than credit card debt. <laughs> and so if you wouldn't put it on a credit card, don't put it on a private student loan. Okay. So the sort of non-controversial take is student loans are actually a pretty good vehicle for financing it, but credit cards, private loans, not necessarily. All right. I got that. There's another whole set of decisions in, in here. Uh, being the, the brilliant economic mind that I was in college, I decided to get a history major because that and uh, $5 will buy you a cup of coffee these days. But, uh, you know, if my son comes home and he says, you know, I want to be a English major, or maybe he wants to think about economics, um, how concerned should I be about those choices he's making? And where are the places that students can look to make what can be a pretty important decision on what you study? Okay. So a couple things. First, what you study is going to have a bigger impact on what you ultimately earn than where you go to school. So we tend to think of what to study as sort of a secondary decision, right? We spend years and years coaching our kid on how to apply to school, where how to think about which one to go to, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in terms of financial impact, that matters a lot less than what they're going to choose to study. And so that's an important thing to consider, just to appreciate that this is hugely consequential in terms of future finances for, for, the, for the student. Um, so where do they go? A couple places. 
First, if you're unsure on where you want to go, you can look at trends across different majors, you know, for everyone, you know, not conditional on an institution. Doug Weber, professor at Temporal University, has a fantastic resource on his website, which publishes average earnings across different majors. And I'm, I, I don't hesitate at all to send you to this academic website because it's not a wonky, difficult to read through thing. It's actually a very readable and helpful document for aspiring students and their families to take a look at. So check out. Doug Weber's work at Temple University. The other is to go back to the college scorecard. So once you've got some colleges in mind, you can actually look within those colleges at what's the level of earnings across different majors. And they actually don't even publish the average earnings across the entire institution. They only break it down by major, which is, I think, important because it illustrates that um, this is the dimension on which you're making the really critical decision that will have a huge influence on your, your later income. So, of course, you know, students, I don't advise students to pick the highest earning major that exists. We can't all be electrical engineers. We shouldn't all be electrical engineers, um, but it should factor in, right? And, and knowing how much you're willing to pay for a degree probably should have something to do with how much you think you're going to earn, which is fundamentally related to what you're going to study. Um, so I think having the data on that is, is really important, and it's not something that we've previously encouraged people to do. Now, some people will defend the humanities and say, well, if I, I see plenty of these um, fancy employers like the investment banks or the consulting firms who are looking for humanities majors from elite institutions, and that's great. That's true. I have seen history and English majors go on to work at McKinsey or um, Morgan Stanley, and, and that's true. The vast majority of us are not in that position of graduating from an elite institution, and we probably need to be a bit more practical about our decisions. And if you look at the data, that, that is played out in the data. And, and very apparent. So if you're a parent talking with your kid, you don't only want to try and influence them on where, you also may want to go to the mat on what they're going to study. Because, you know, maybe 18 and 19 year olds aren't seeing the long-term implications of that without a little help. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I went off to college, I went to a small liberal arts school in, in Western New York state and I was studying um, tap dancing and voice and musical theater. Um, and, and my parents actually forced me to take a minor in business because they apparently had this idea that um, even with all these um, theater classes, that if I had just had a business minor, I'd be successful and be able to pay my rent after I graduated. <laughs> now I pivoted a pretty in a pretty big way from that to get a math major at my local state school um, starting at my sophomore year. But yeah, I mean, these are huge decisions for young people, but I think they're capable of a lot more than we give them credit for, because I think that the message they've been getting and we've been sending loud and clear for decades now is that just go to college. It's the golden ticket. And so they're hearing that they're internalizing that and they're just going to college, but no one is telling them just go to college and make the right decision about where to go, how much to pay and what to study. And then you'll be just fine. So I think if we, you know, help them and give them first, the idea that they should be thinking about these things, if they care about their future financial well-being, which I think they do, um, we give them the direction that they should be thinking about it and then tell them how to find information about it. I think that would go a long way. So these are big decisions. They have implications for people's lives. And I'm buying your your arguments about where we should think about, where we should uh, should look, how to narrow our search and improve the likelihood that, yeah, we can make college pay. But in your book, you also talk about a couple of different 
measures or uh, types of insurance on college degrees to sort of hedge the investment. Can you explain some of those? Yeah. So, you know, I've been saying for years, the problem with college is not that it's too expensive. It's that it's risky. If I told you I was going to charge you $100,000 for a college degree and that you would necessarily earn an extra $2 million over the course of your lifetime because of that investment, it's a no-brainer, right? Sure, here's my $100,000. I'll write a check today or I'll, I'll, I'll sign on the promissory note for the loan today, right? The problem is that we're forking over all this money and not necessarily knowing that it's going to get that return. And so that's the problem to solve. Policymakers have worked on solving that through the introduction of income-driven repayment. And folks in the private sector have come up with some really cool solutions as well to address the problem of risk. One of those solutions is an income share agreement. So this is kind of a competitor to the private student loan, but unlike normal private student loans, which have flat monthly payments that are not based on how much you're earning, non-dischargeable and bankruptcy and all, all that business, these are financial agreements where you're given the amount of money that you need on the front end. And in exchange, you don't promise to return every penny that you borrowed. Instead, you say, okay, you can have 2% of my income for five years or whatever your individual contracts um, says. And so if you end up not doing very well, you're not paying anything. If you end up doing great, you're going to pay a lot, although there's usually caps on those. Um, and so we're seeing programs like that pop up in all different forms. Um, we're even seeing some colleges offering wage guarantees. So if you're not earning over $45,000 a year, for example, in the first year after you graduate, they're going to help you pay back your student loans. So um, the programs are still few and far between, but I wanted to write about them in the book because I think they're so perfectly targeted at the problems that American families are really facing, right? That college is a good investment, but it's a very risky investment. And, you know, we're, we're putting a lot on the line, all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to higher ed and any tools that are out there that can take away some of that risk are really exciting in my mind. Yeah, that's really fantastically interesting to think about these, you know, they're sort of nascent programs, but they're trying to get at these problems in a different and creative way. The uh, income share agreement mm -hmm. is sort of particularly interesting because on the one hand, it seems like capitalism run amok, right? We're going to place bets on students and then we <laughs> get a share of their income. But actually the way it works is, you know, the investor takes some risk and the student wins no matter what happens. Um, they just lose a yeah. little share of uh, of those winnings to the person who took on mm -hmm. the risk. I like to say that it's really like a loan paired with an insurance policy. So if things go south, you're not on the hook. Um, and insurance is great. We love insurance in all other aspects of our lives, right? But when we apply it to education, I think some people get a little squeamish. <laughs> um, but you got to remember, too, that it's actually, even if it's a little uh, off-putting, the idea of investing in, in students as if they were startups or something like that, it's actually a lot less squeamish than the status quo, which is that you're putting someone on the hook with a private student loan. They're on the hook to pay, maybe with a co-signer whether or not college works out for them, even if they die, and then even if they go through bankruptcy. I mean, these are not very friendly financial products. And so even if you feel a little icky about something that looks more complex, more like an insurance product, it's actually a lot, a lot more friendly than the status quo. So college is still worth the investment today. And there's lots of ways to help with that risk and, and decisions to make to make that sure to pay off. 
how likely do you think it is that that will still be the case 10 years from today, 20 years down the road? Mm. Great question. So I like to say like that the cost of college today is not that concerning to me because we see that people are out earning the, the amount of money that they spend for college. So it makes it worth it, right? It's expensive, but it's worth it. It's like an iPhone. It's expensive, but it's worth it, right? That's why we all pay for it because we value it at more than what it costs us. I'm afraid that with the trajectory that tuition is on right now, that that may no longer be the case in five or 10 years. Um, so, you know, we need for wages and, and college, you know, um, earnings to keep pace with tuition inflation in order for that equation to continue to work. And I'm skeptical that it will. We know that tuition is rising faster than any other set of prices in the economy. It's not quite as bad as most people think because there's all these hidden discounts in college, um, which we didn't really talk about. But, uh, you know, people end up paying a lot less than the sticker price that's advertised on the website. And, and it's, so it's harder to see how affordable college actually is but it's still on a concerning trajectory. And I think if we continue to let prices rise as we have, we're going to hit a point where it's no longer a justifiable financial investment to go to college. I don't think we're there today. I don't think that's something that parents today need to be overly concerned about. I think that as a parent or an individual or an adult returning to school, you can do the calculus based on the numbers that are in front of you today and feel pretty comfortable about your decision. If you look at a school and see their graduates are doing pretty well, it's pretty good indication that, you know, it's going to be worth the price for you as well. Um, so I think it's a bigger question for policymakers. How do we stop the rampant explosion and, of tuition? And prices? Maybe Beth, a good topic for a new book for a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, but we'll leave that for a future, uh, <laughs> a, a, a future set of decisions. So um, you tease that your book has more information about some hidden discounts that uh, are available. So we can't cover everything in the book, but it's called Making College Pay and folks can get it starting this week. So congratulations on that work. I wanna close this out by giving people you know, sort of the, 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 the boiled down version. If you had to give your advice for a prospective college student in just a few sentences, what would that advice be? Okay. Know why you're going to college first, then go backwards from where you want to end up and figure out what's the most efficient path to get there. Um, then go to the data, look at the college scorecard, figure out what paths you're considering make sense financially and pick one and go for it. Beth Akers, thanks for coming on the report card and thanks for writing uh, Making College Pay. Thanks for having me, Nat. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Beth Akers. You can pick up a copy of Beth's new book, Making College Pay, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. We'll include a link in today's show notes. As always, thanks to Matt Rice, our producer, for making this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, send your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Matt Malkins. 